0: Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit Christchurchlondon.org. Good uh, morning, Central Service. How are you today? Marvellous, marvellous. Uh, Just want to start by saying thank you, actually, for all your prayers and encouragements for how our fifth... Christchurch London service is going in Sutton. We are now four months, just around about, into weekly Sunday services. And boy, oh boy, has it been an adventure in the jungles of Zone 5 South London. Uh, the, uh, the lowest point, the darkest hour, came about three Sundays in. This is uh, back in October. Uh, I think Liam had been preaching. No, that wasn't the low point. And um, I was on van driving duty. We had to take all our equipment, unload it in a garage, take the van back to an underground car park deep in the depths of Sutton. So uh, I got the van back and thought, before I type in the code to lock the rental van, I'll just check the back in case we've left any church equipment inside. So go around the back, open the doors. Oh, no, there's some stuff still in there. So I'll get in the back to retrieve it. The weight of me in the van means the doors close behind me. I'm trapped in (laughs) darkness. No problem. I'll just find the handle and set myself free. There is no handle, and the doors have locked upon shutting. I am locked in the back of a rental van in an underground car park in the middle of Sutton. Uh, well, um, I'm proud to say I handled this moment in a very mature, courageous, and godly way. Uh, well, no, actually, I screamed. Um, I, I banged on the side of the van. Uh, I'm in the van. I'm going to die. Don't let me die. I'm in the van. It was basically how it went. It was, um, it was like Sutton's version of the Chilean miners, basically how it went. And uh, I was like in the dark thinking, this, this is just like one of those Bible stories where people die for their faith. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die starting a church service. Um, but clearly I'm here today. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to say thanks. I believe to your prayers and the faithfulness of God, I was released after 14 traumatic minutes to be, to be with you today. God isn't done with me yet. And uh, in all seriousness, since, since that moment, generally speaking, things have moved in the right direction. Uh, We've been going for around about 15 Sundays or so. We've seen around about one person uh, join us per week. And more importantly than that, we've begun to see uh, lives get changed. Uh, We've seen two people come to faith in Jesus in the last couple of months. And there is something about being close up to watching Jesus transform people's lives that I think beats anything else in all the world. So I want to say thank you both for your prayers and encouragements, uh, but also for your generosity to church. Uh, Because we couldn't start services like this without the way that you give. And while you may never go to Sutton in your entire life, I mean, why would you want to do that? When you hear stories about lives being changed, I hope you are able to say to yourself, I helped make that happen, because you really did. So thank you, thank you, thank you, not just for what you give, but also how you give. With faith and cheerfulness and generosity in your hearts, we really couldn't do it without you. Okay, on to the talk for today. Uh, We are on week six of a series of talks under the banner, Awaken, which we hope will be something of a spiritual wake-up call for us at the start of 2019. We're looking at some of the hallmarks of what I might call a great move of God, which we long for in this city, and the part that we might have to play in all of that. We've looked at things like the significance of fasting, devotion to prayer, a fresh thirst for more of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And today we're looking at the importance of mission. And if you have a Bible, I would love you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, These are very well-known words of Jesus. We're just going to read three verses together this morning. They're on the screen as well. And uh, this is what Jesus says. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to start with a brief reminder as to why we started this church in the first place and why we have started every single service since. It is because we want to be good news to our world and every community in which we find ourselves. We want to provide a sense of home and family for those who feel lost and lonely. We want to serve the broken and those who are in need. We want to care for every single person in our community to let them know that Jesus loves them that he is calling them, that he has a plan for their lives and therefore whatever they are going through there is always, always, always hope for the future. We are here to be an outward looking church and therefore we want the hallmark of us as a community, the hallmark of this service more than anything else to be lives that are changed. This is why we do this and that's what the call of Jesus is all about in Matthew chapter 5. This is our raison d'etre as a church. This is why we're here. Let me read the words again from the Message Translation of the Bible, which I found really fresh. Jesus says this, You are here to be light, bringing out the God colours in the world. I love that phrase. God's not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this. As public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. This is our call. And if I had to sum up this talk in a sentence, it would be this. So let's not hide our light under a bucket. I want to start with a visual illustration of Jesus' words. I know sometimes we remember things better visually than we do audibly. And for this, I need a volunteer. Christian Henry, would you like to come to the stage, please, my friend? A little emotion. It's called excitement. You want to come to the front? If you want to come just, just stand here and hold this, uh, hold this lamp. Um, this is like a, an image of our core. Imagine all the lights went off in this room, and this here was the only light. We're here to be direction, purpose, comfort, security, healing, meaning, and so on and so forth. This is our core. But I find it interesting Jesus doesn't elaborate on that. He simply says this. You're here to be light, so don't hide your light under a bucket. Now, I don't have a bucket big enough to hide Christian underneath. But I do have this large throw. Christian is slowly realizing where this illustration is going. Jesus says, don't do this. What a curious illustration. Uh, now, just for health and safety reasons, Christian, you can nod. Can you still hear me in there? Yeah, yeah you, you, just, 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 just nod. Great. Uh, are you okay in there? Yeah. Great. Am I still your favorite preacher? Yeah. Great, great, thanks very much. I was just struck by the utter absurdity of this illustration. If we are called to be light, why on earth would any of us do this? And then I remembered, you've got about 10 minutes, Christian, just so you know. <laughs> then I remembered what darkness sometimes represents in the Bible. And I got to thinking how each of us can sometimes let darkness into our lives that can dim, if not extinguish, the call of God on our lives. Let me just take them in turn very briefly. First thing that darkness represents is what I might call the unknowability of God. So while God is light and dwells in unapproachable light, The Bible sometimes says he is surrounded by darkness. It's a picture of the mystery surrounding God. There's something holy about him, something off-limits. We can't see him, touch him, taste him, smell him. Worse still, the Bible sometimes describes our condition as being blinded to God. verse from 2 Corinthians coming up on the screen. And so if I am blinded to God and God is surrounded by darkness, how on earth do I get light into my life? Well, this is church. So it stands to reason the answer is Jesus. Jesus comes along and he basically says this, I am here to make the invisible visible. No one has ever seen the Father. No one knows what God is like, but if you look at me, you will know what the Father is like. If you ever get into a debate about the Christian faith, you know you want your best apologetic more than anything else. It is Jesus. It's him. Jesus puts it like this in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. In other words, the number one thing that can cause our light to grow dim is distance from Jesus. Over the last three decades of my life, I have heard a lot of sermons on mission. Generally speaking, they leave me feeling worse rather than better because they remind me of all the things that I should be doing that I'm not doing right now. I don't share my faith enough. I'm not hospitable enough. I'm not loving enough. I don't pray enough. And I leave church feeling weary and guilty. Well, that's because my focus is in the wrong place. You see, more than anything else, the Christian faith is an invitation into the most radical and dynamic relationship possible. We get him. That's the point. Imagine, if you will, my wedding day. Photo coming up of me on my wedding day. I'm just about to utter the vows to joy. haven't changed a bit. I'm sure you would agree. Now, just imagine at this point in the service, I stop the vows and say, hang on a moment. Before we go through this vow thing, can I just clarify what's the minimum I need to do to maintain my husband's status? What do you think of me? You think, firstly, this relationship won't last very long. And secondly, you would think, why is he thinking about that when his beautiful bride is before him? It is exactly the same with Jesus. We'll get to the stuff we need to do for mission, sure. But more than anything else, we get. Him, that's the point. And he is better than anything and everything else. And if we want to fulfill our call to be light, more than anything else, we need to get close to him. One of the unhelpful pieces of terminology I think sometimes people use when they talk about the Christian faith is by talking about insiders and outsiders. You're either in or you're out. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're not. And I think when it comes to mission, this can actually do some harm. Because mission becomes little more than me who is in, going to those who are out and bringing them in. And it leaves other people as little more than targets to be got. And it leads to pride and superiority in my own life because, after all, I'm an insider. Come to where I am. This is sometimes called a bounded set mentality. A better approach when it comes to mission is what I would call a center set mentality. In a centre set, everything is defined by its orientation to a central point and its movement towards or away from it. Let me illustrate this for a moment by talking about hair. Hair. Now bear with me for a moment. Imagine a people group defined by those who have hair. So right at the centre of this group would be Chewbacca from Star Wars, Cobra from Planet of the Apes, Liam Thatcher from Christchurch. (laughs) He's our hairiest representative Looks like a rug in a swimming pool. No, 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 don't, don't get that picture out of your heads. Now, when I was born, I was very much on the outside of this group. Picture of me as a baby coming up on the screen. There I am. I am an outsider. I am not in this group at all. But slowly and steadily over the first few years of my life, I made my way into this group. Next slide is a picture of me coming up, the one after this, at 11 years old. That's me. I've got hair. Oh, thank you so much for that pity groan. I've got hair all over my head. I have completed my journey to hairiness. I'm in. Me and Chewbacca and Liam, we can all be friends together. Come on. But then, but then, but then. (laughs) At around about the age of 32, 33, I began a new journey, a journey that takes me further away from the center of this group with every passing day. Would you even consider me a member of the in group anymore? I was hoping for one yes. I mean, I just, I prayed for one yes. (laughs) How many hairs do you need on your head to be considered part of the in-group? Only God knows the number of hairs on my head. Now, the point of the illustration is this. I have watched people go on this kind of journey with Jesus the whole time. And some of them can even be church leaders. Oh, it starts out with such enthusiasm. I want to follow Jesus. I want to get close to him. And then over the years, something happens. Maybe a prayer doesn't get answered. Maybe they think, in this area of my life, I think I know better than Jesus. Maybe they get disillusioned or it feels a bit samey and slowly their trajectory, their orientation begins to change. I find it really interesting, go back a couple of thousand years, Jesus would sometimes talk to those who looked like insiders. Oh, they were in religious services every week. They prayed and they fasted and they gave. But Jesus would say things like, you are outside of the kingdom of God. And then he would sometimes address those who looked like outsiders. Their lives were broken, total mess. But Jesus would treat them like insiders, why they knew more than anything else it's all about getting close to Jesus. He'd say things like your many sins, they've been forgiven. Today salvation has come to this house. Can I ask you a question at the start of this talk? What is your trajectory and orientation with regards to Jesus? Some of you I have known for a long time. You're in church most Sundays. And you give. And you serve. and You pray. Are you still growing closer to Jesus? Do you still recognise it's all about him? You know, faith in Jesus is basically presuming he is right about everything. Do you still believe that? Or conversely, maybe there are people here today and you feel like an outsider. You feel like you've messed up too much. You've made too many mistakes. You can be right on the inside of what God is doing in the city because it is not about your success and failure. It is all about proximity to Jesus. Jesus says this, whoever follows me will what? Never walk in darkness. You're not quite done yet. There is... There's actually a warning about this in the New Testament. City of Ephesus, one of the biggest cities in the known world, Paul writes to them, Ephesians 5, he says, live in the light, fulfill your call to be a lamp on a stand. Within less than 30 years, less than 30 years, book of Revelation, you probably know this, Paul writes and he says, oh, Ephesus, you've done loads of good works, but you've lost your first love. And Jesus says this, you need to get your first love back. If you don't get your first love back, what's going to happen? Jesus says, your lampstand is going to get removed. This can happen if we lose our passion for Jesus. We are 15 years old as a church this year. Do you know the number one determiner of whether this service is still going when we're 25, 35, 55? It's not all the good works we do. More than anything else, it is passion for Jesus. How are we doing in that regard? How am I? Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. If we want to fulfill the call of God on our lives to be light and healing and hope and direction and salvation, more than anything else, we have to get close to him. Can I have a round of applause for Christian Henry, please? You did great. How are you doing? Are you getting closer to Jesus? Second thing that darkness sometimes represents is what I would call chaos. Chaos. Now I spoke on this a few years ago, I'm sure you don't remember. Let me just refresh your memories a little bit. Imagine for a moment this room was plunged into darkness so we couldn't see anything and the fire alarm went off. What would happen? It would be chaos. We'd be stumbling over each other, we'd be falling over the seats, desperate to get to the kids, how are they doing? There'd be fear and anxiety, chaos. That is sometimes how the Bible pictures darkness. I want you to imagine for a moment the world that the Bible was written into, the ancient world, the ancient Near East. They did not have explanations for many of the phenomena like epidemics, earthquakes, tsunamis. And so what they did was they created personifications of these forces beyond their control that they kind of called chaos monsters. Uh, You can see some pictures coming up on the screen that kind of embodied their kind of thinking, how they saw the world as being dominated by gods of limited power that fought life out you know, outside of their kind of existence. You can see a glimpse of this kind of worldview in the scriptures. Let me give you a couple of examples. Isaiah 51, we read this. In days of olden times, generations of ages past, wasn't it you, Lord, who stabbed the dragon? Did you ever wonder, when did God kill a dragon? When did that happen? Sounds like a great story. Psalm 74. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan. Uh, notice that this creature has heads not just one head. What what kind of creature was was this? Now, just as an aside, uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that these creatures definitely existed. Uh, Let me give you an example. Imagine if in the middle of worship I uttered a prayer, God, you are smarter than Hercule Poirot, amen. I am not with that prayer necessarily declaring that Hercule Poirot is a real person. No, he's a fictional detective created by Agatha Christie. All I am doing is using a cultural reference with which we are all familiar with which to worship God. And I think that's at least kind of what's happening in Isaiah 51 and Psalm 74. But the way they saw the world was all these forces beyond their control that made them feel scared and anxious. Now we'll come back to this in a moment, but of course many thousands of years later we don't see the world in such a primitive way. But we create our own chaos monsters instead. Let me give you a few examples. Exhibit A would be Brexit. Now, this is not meant to be a political point. Whichever way you voted, you are welcome in this church. But no one knows what's going to happen. Are we going to stay in after all? Are we going to leave? Will there be a deal? Will there be no deal? Will there be a general election or a new prime minister? No one knows. But if there is one thing around which everyone in the UK seems united right now, it is this. Whatever happens, it's going to be bad. We're all doomed. It's going to be a disaster. What's it mean for my family? My friends, my provision, my work. Ah, darkness, chaos monsters. Let me give you another example. Secularism has triumphed. It's not that people don't want to know about God anymore, they are hostile to him. They don't like Christians, they want to move to the sidelines. Richard Dawkins has won. Chaos monsters. We can have personal chaos monsters. Let me give you one of mine. Many years ago when I graduated from uni and started work, I was absolutely petrified on Monday morning that somebody would discover that the previous day I had been to church and I followed Jesus. I created all these scenarios in my head. Will they still like me if they find out? Will they gossip about me behind my back? What if they ask an aggressively worded question and I can't answer it? All these frightening scenarios, chaos, monsters. Let me give you another example. This person is too far from God. They're too hostile to Christianity. Their life is too broken. Our society is too messed up. Knife crime, homelessness, poverty. It's too broken to even, what difference can I make? And in the end, I find myself hiding under the covers. Chaos monsters have dimmed, if not extinguished, my light. What's the antidote to all this fear? Well, it's not just proximity to Jesus. The antidote to fear is faith in him confidence that whatever is happening in our society right now Jesus is stronger. Genesis 1.1 we're told God creates the heavens and the earth. Then Genesis 1.2 we're told darkness is over the surface of the deep. So before anything seemingly creative has happened darkness is there. Generally speaking the ancients would have looked at that verse as that kind of world full of scary chaos monsters, a world full of forces beyond their control. And so, in Genesis 1-3, when God declares, let there be light, it is less, in my opinion, a literal account of how God created the world, and more, it's like that moment when a child is huddled in bed for fear in the middle of the night, scared there is a monster in the wardrobe, a parent comes in, switches on the light, and the child suddenly knows... Oh, it's not just that there's no monster in the wardrobe. Better still, Daddy's here. That's kind of what's happening in Genesis 1-3. A bit of bonus teaching for you because we've got time. Genesis 1-1, the Hebrew word used for God creating the world is bara. Bara is the creating only God can do. No human being ever bara in the Bible. But then after Genesis 1-1, a whole load of creative action happens. Earth. Uh, Sun, moon, stars, sea, sky. But Barat is not used again until Genesis 1, 21, where what is created in the Hebrew, tananim, translated sea monsters or sea dragons. What's the writer doing? He's saying this, the scariest forces in your world, the things that you think are beyond your control, God's stronger. He made them. He's in charge. Daddy is here. You can trust in him. That's how we're to live when it comes to mission. Rick Warren, who leads an amazing church in the US, he makes this point that in the 1930s, the world was in a very unstable place. World War II on the horizon, recession, inequality, injustice, poverty. He said during this period, two things increased theatre attendance and church attendance. People wanting to escape what they perceive to be darkness, the chaos, the fear, but they also search for the light as well. And Rick Warren says this, when it comes to the purposes of God, the worst of times really can be the best of times. Sure, there's fear and uncertainty and anxiety in our nation right now. This can be the most amazing opportunity for the church. I find it interesting, Jesus never tells us to pray for the harvest. He never says, oh, I'm scared people won't become disciples. I'm scared this church project might fail. No, he says, guys, the harvest is plentiful. It's as true today as it was then. You may have seen some research out a couple of years ago by Barnett, leading research company, and the church was so staggered by it, they didn't believe it was true initially. 20% of people in the UK are reportedly open to having a conversation about Jesus and an encounter with Christ. Imagine if 20% of people in the UK came to know Jesus. That, that's happened before. I'm going to tell you about that in a few moments' time. There is a plentiful harvest, and so we should live with confidence. You know, when I shared my faith in the workplace, you need to know some people wanted to know more. Others didn't. Some people wanted to come to Alpha. Others, not so much. But there were no chaos monsters. And of the worst that happened... Jesus is stronger. When I graduated from uni, I moved to Birmingham and joined a dynamic church led by a a radical young couple called David and Philippa Stroud. You may have heard of them. And on one of my first Sundays, I heard a testimony of a primary school teacher. And she'd been living her life thinking, can I make any difference? Have I really got a part to play? I don't have the answers. And she thought, no, I'm called to be light. Light beats darkness every time. What can I do? And she started to pray. And she felt what she thought was a nudge from God and she thought, I know where I'm going to start. I'm going to start by at the end of every school day praying the prayer of blessing over the kids. You know, God bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you. She was a bit scared, but she thought they're primary school kids. What harm can it do? I'm going to give that a go. So every school day, at the end of every day, she starts praying for the kids. After a few weeks, she's on break duty, one morning, one evening, I don't remember, in the playground. And a a mum who doesn't go to church not a Christian, comes up to her in the playground wagging her finger and she says this, you didn't pray for the children yesterday. And this primary school teacher was like, oh I'm, I'm really sorry, busy day, you know how it gets. You didn't pray for the children yesterday. She said this, before you started praying, my boy six, seven years old, he used to have terrible nightmares every single night. They stopped as soon as you started praying. Yesterday, when you didn't pray, the nightmares came back. Would you pray again? What an amazing opportunity to talk about the power of Jesus. You don't need my prayers. You can do this too. Moral of the story, Jesus is stronger than your worst nightmare. Whatever you are doing at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, you can make a difference for the kingdom of God. You can be light. And all the scenarios you might conjure up of how things could go very badly wrong, Jesus is stronger than the chaos monsters and we should trust in him. How do we be light? How do we fulfill our call? Get close to Jesus. Secondly, have confidence in him. And then thirdly and finally, what does darkness represent in the Bible? It is this, sin. Sin. And I think in this illustration, this is less the bad things that I do do that stop people seeing my light. Because if you look at the illustration Jesus is giving, it's more the good things that they cannot see. That cause people to think, wow, I want to find out what this God is all about. If I'm called to be light and hope and peace and salvation, why would I live like this? Why would I I do this? Well, perhaps this illustration can help. No idea if this story is true, but it fits the sermon, so I'll use it. Apparently, a number of years ago, there was a big debate between the Foreign Office and the Treasury in the UK. And the debate was over how many ambassadors in different cities of the world would be allowed to drive a Rolls-Royce car. The Treasury said, really expensive, not many, of course. But the Foreign Office said, ah, hang on a minute. Before we make this decision, think about it. Most people in all these cities have never been to the UK before, have no idea what it's like. When they see this amazing car gliding through the streets of their city with the Union Jack flag on the front, they will say to themselves, I've no idea what that country's like, no idea what they do there, but if they drive cars like that there, I have to go and see for myself. Now, I've no idea if that story is true, and if it is, who won? But the point is this. Jesus is calling us to live Rolls Royce lives. Lives that other people look at and say, wow, what kingdom are they from? Why wouldn't I live that out? Well, it's like we have two little voices in our ears. We have the voice of a foreign kingdom, the whisper of the Spirit saying, you can enjoy more of the life of God now if you want. Don't settle. Don't plateau. You may have been following Jesus for so long, but there's still more for you. Come on, break through fear. Take a step further. It'll be worth it. Jesus is stronger than the chaos monsters. Watch them get slain. It's going to be amazing. Come on. And then we have a voice of our own personal treasury, which says this, if you live that way, it's going to cost you. If you open your friendship group for one more person, if you practice hospitality, if you step out your comfort zone and share your faith, it's going to cost you. you really up for that? Maybe it's safer to stay under the covers, to keep your light hidden. Maybe it's easier that way. Here's the question I've been asking myself as we've gone through this series. Am I prepared to pay the cost? And are you? You know, when I shared about Sutton earlier, It's right and good that we punch the air and celebrate and rejoice with the angels when people come to faith in Jesus. But I want you to know this, and it is important that you know this, that as and when you plant more services, or even for those of you who are called to stay, it has been hard work. Tears have been shed. I saw John Tyson tweet a few weeks ago, he leads a large church in New York, He said this, if you don't believe in spiritual warfare, try planting a new church and your opinion will change. We have felt that. We felt light break through into darkness. But we felt the pain of the darkness too. And I over the last four months have heard the whisper of my own personal treasury. You up for paying the cost? Be easier to quit. Am I prepared to pay the price? Or am I going to hide my light? Let me tell you a story about two people who were prepared to pay the cost. They probably ushered in the last great awakening to this city. Their names were William and Catherine Booth and this happened just over a hundred years ago. They founded the Salvation Army. Bit of background, both were born in 1829. Uh, William came to faith at a mission in Nottingham when he was 15. Uh, Catherine had childhood faith. In fact, it's thought by the age of 12, she had read the Bible eight times through. We mustn't underestimate the importance of what's going on in the kids' work right now as we raise the awakeners of the future. Uh, They moved to London around about 1850, met in 1851, were married actually in Stockwell in 1855. And their mission began to explode when they were about 36 years old in 1865. Here is just some of what they saw. In the three years from 1865 to 1868, they saw 4,000 people find faith in Jesus. They planted 13 preaching stations, each of which offered 140 services per week. We're doing five right now. Ten years later, now age 49, 1878, they are gathering 27,280 people across the capital. By the time they were 16, another decade later, 1889, their 10,000 officers were conducting 50,000 church meetings every single week and personally visiting 54,000 homes per week. So at this point, William wrote a bestseller called Darkest England and the Way Out. By 1906, the Salvation Army was offering a myriad of services to the needy. These included over 52 million meals to the hungry. They housed over 11 million. Located 12,325 lost persons, found 9,000 jobs for the unemployed, accepted 35,207 women and girls into rescue homes, visited 720,593 families who lived in slums, nursed 44,893 sick people. Between 1881 and 1885 alone, they saw over 250,000 people find faith in Jesus. They sent missionaries to all four corners of the earth. A recent Huffington Post article described them as the couple who changed the world. How did they do it? In his New Year's Day sermon in 1869, William Booth said this, the great test of character is doing. God, the church and the world all estimate people not according to their sayings, feelings or desiring but according to their doing. They just live with this utter conviction Jesus could change anyone's life one example a man called Elijah Cadman this is just one I mean there are millions of stories I mean it's just extraordinary Elijah Cadman he was a chimney sweep six years old he was paid only in beer and he was drunk regularly at just six by 17 years old he was violent dangerous angry, he hated God, he hated the Christian faith, and he went to a sermon to try and cause trouble, to try and cause violence. He encountered Jesus, totally changed his life, became one of the leading lights in the Salvation Army. There are gazillions of stories just like that. Jesus can change anyone. By the 17th of August, 1917, William lost his life, he passed away. He was ultimately known as the prophet of the poor. And upon his death, London streets were packed with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Some images from his funeral are coming up on the screen behind me. 150,000 alone filed past his casket. Little known fact, the Queen of England, Queen Mary, actually attended his funeral incognito and sat next to a woman from the sex industry. I think that's the most wonderful picture of his ability to reach people from any and every walk of life one woman from the sex industry left flowers at his grave with a note which read this, you see, he cared even for the likes of us. Shortly before his death, William Booth said this, and this, he said, is the secret to an awakening in this city and this nation. We need to listen to this. I will tell you the secret, he said. God had all there was of me. There have been men with greater opportunities But from the day I got the people of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it's because God had all the adoration of my heart, the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. Goodness, those are challenging words. Jesus is calling us to be light. Number one, I've got to get close to him again. Number two, I have to remember, he is stronger than my worst nightmare. As hard as this might be, I can trust in him. He's amazing. But then I need to pay the cost. I need to say, you can have all of me there is. As we go through this series, we may long for our city to be awakened. I may pray for my city to be awakened. Am I up for doing anything about it? A week. Maybe the band want to come up. Why don't we all stand to our feet? I'm going to pray now. Asking the presence of the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. Particularly for those who've come forward, but there are others too. Can I ask you, open your hearts to receive what Jesus wants to give you. Listen to the whispers of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he will put people in your world, in your mind's eye, as a way of saying, I want you to reach them. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come now. Come, Holy Spirit. For the sake of this city, come. For the sake of our city, come. I want to pray for courage. I want to pray for a fresh vision. I want to pray for faith. I want to ask that the gift of the evangelist will be reawakened in our church. I pray for the gift of the prophet that my brothers and sisters would hear your voice in fresh ways the fruit might be those who don't know you fall on their knees and think God must be real. I pray the hallmark of this service in Blackfriars more than anything else would be lives that get changed. I pray for a multitude of spiritual births. This city saw it in William Booth's day. God, the harvest is plentiful. We believe it. Give it us again, I ask in the name of Jesus. Help us not to settle Help us not to go through the motions. Help us not to hide under the covers. I pray for boldness. And as we worship you now, I pray that these words would be an expression of our confidence in you. That you are the light of the world and if we stay close to you, we can expect our communities to be flooded with light. We worship you and I pray for another fresh wave of your presence to fill my brothers and sisters now in the name of Jesus and for the glory of his kingdom.